So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. And you're like, oh, we put a lot of work into that. I'm not sure I like it being background noise at your home office, but that's the reality. And I, I think one thing that we've tried to do well in the virtual space is just test out a lot of the platforms for stuff that feels more natural and organic, whether it's sort of the, the platforms like Run the World or Icebreaker.video for one-on-one meetings or stuff like Remo, where you can kind of move around to virtual tables. And so a lot of running good virtual events does rely on like having a... Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Scott Kersner. Scott, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. I feel like the name of my company and the name of your podcast were a total Venn diagram. Right. Well, listen, let's start off there. Tell us about innovationleader.com, writing for the Boston Globe and Wired Magazine and writing these books and uh, give, give us the quick overview. Well, the really quick overview is that I always have been someone who's really interested in emerging technology and what's coming next and, and really trying to understand what's what's over the horizon and going to change kind of how we live and how we work. I always loved experimenting with new technologies. And so when I needed to have a job, I kind of became a journalist writing about new things for magazines like Wired and Fast Company and the New York Times and the Boston Globe. And it's basically just a kind of, you know, canny um, way to get people to pay to send me around the world and and learn stuff and kind of see what was on the leading edge, right? Like it's hard to beat getting wired to pay your travel expenses. So you can go to Glendale, California and hang out at Walt Disney Imagineering and see like what what is the future of the theme park industry going to be? So I've always loved I've always loved that. And then at a certain point around 2013, my my two co-founders of Innovation Leader and I said, you know, there's really a big difference between a startup that that is trying to build the future, you know, and you could pick Uber, Airbnb, Spotify, whatever the startup, Google, Amazon, and and the culture that that exists inside that startup where pretty much everybody's aligned around, we see this vision of the future and we're going to make it happen. And then larger companies, more established companies that have been around for 50 or 100 years, like Disney, like Starbucks, like Marriott, like Bank of America, Right. And when they see the future or when a couple people inside that organization see the future and want to build some stuff and experiment, it's much harder. And there are a lot of headwinds and a lot of organizational dynamics, right, that make innovation tougher inside these more established companies. Yeah, you know, it it has been really interesting. I didn't understand hardly anything about that. And then we get, you know, head of innovation for Cisco on or head of innovation for $40 billion ADM or 
you know, there's this guy, great guy I've been doing more stuff with lately, George Brooks. He's got this agency in Kansas City called Crema, where it's like, if you're some big multi-billion dollar company and you've already spent a million or two on your app and you're a year into it and you haven't gotten anywhere and you're this new revolutionary thing is like behind schedule, disappointing everyone over budget and you need to turn this around. This is like the SWAT team you you call in to like quit siloing, get people to work together, get a feedback loop with the customers and the, you know, and it, it has been really interesting to, to really look for me of like this. It's great. You've got a name, you've got resources, you've got so many advantages startups beg for. And then you've just got like ball and, you know, 14 ball and chains around your ankle, keeping you from actually making use of it. I don't know how you yeah. see it. But. I, I do see it as like, well, first of all, it's a great opportunity for consultants to come in, right, and help try to address those problems when companies dig themselves into kind of an innovation or a technology hole, right? And there's billions of dollars that get spent on consulting every year to dig big companies out of that hole. But, you know, you can almost think of it as a numbers game. And in any company that you're building, right, people have ideas and, and they might be ideas about just how to do stuff incrementally a little bit better. They might be crazy new product ideas that where they see an opportunity that the company really should be pursuing. And it's much easier to manage those ideas and to embrace and test those ideas when you're five people in a in a garage or you're 10 people in a garage, right, versus 10,000 people. And so you start to see that scale problem emerge, whether you're Google. And I remember Google talking about this problem of, gee, how do we manage? We have a lot of people who are working 20% of their time on interesting projects that could be relevant for Google, you know, with what they call 20% time at Google. And how do you then sort through all of those projects to figure out which are the best ones to put resources against? And, and large companies just have a lot of people who are much more focused on operations and safety and regulatory requirements. And so those people are really good at saying no to innovation and to ideas. And they're really good at coming up with, with reasons that you shouldn't even run tests of, of new ideas. So when you think about kind of the, what are you guys bringing to the table that's special there? I mean, there's so many, there's so many big company folks, you know, my, my, my call in two hours today is with one of the five largest tech companies in the world. And it's, and it's a senior executive who's saying like, hey, all the young whippersnappers are running circles around us on this one thing. We, we need to come out with something to make a splash. We need to write it, right? Why are they calling you guys at innovationleader.com? What do you bring to the table that n not just every consultant out there brings? Well, we, we often get confused with a consultancy, but we don't really do anything that, okay. that feels like consulting. We kind of describe ourselves as an information resource and a network for people who work in big companies. And you know, I like metaphors a lot, Jess. So the metaphor I use is like a campfire. We're creating this campfire, which is, you know, information, case studies, research, online and in-person events, when you can do in-person events. And we try to just get people who are dealing with that challenge of innovation in a big company to gather around the campfire. And so it's basically, you know, there's event tickets that people could buy. There's a membership that people can buy. But we don't also try to sell the $100,000 million consulting project. We often will have sponsors participating in, in the events and, and sponsoring the content who may do consulting like a IDO or a KPMG, but we don't do it as, as innovation leader. You know, the thing that I think you were getting at, which is really interesting, is that CEOs like to say the word innovation a lot, and they want to be seen as keeping their company relevant, keeping pace with maybe disruptive startups that are attracting a lot of attention and maybe even attracting a lot of customers in their space. 
but CEOs have a lot of problems. They, they often aren't really specific about what kind of innovation do we want the company to be doing? Who is supposed to be doing it? How do we measure if we're doing it right? And often the other thing too that I was just writing a piece about is that CEOs like to make big bets. They like to take the, the swing for the home run, right? They don't like to hit singles and doubles. And in part, it's it's because they feel like they should be doing big, important projects. And, you know, often you just see those big bets. They will take a long time. They, you know, it's like a giant snowball rolling down the hill. You know, everybody gets involved. You have to be supporting the CEO's big bet. There's some big date where that snowball is going to reach the bottom of the hill. And then fundamentally, something has changed about the market. Two years go by with this big bet, this big snowball. And something really has fundamentally changed and it gets to the bottom of the hill and, you know, it's July and nobody cares about the snowball rolling down the hill. I don't know if that metaphor exactly works or the ski resort has closed and there's nobody there. But with these big bets and big kind of snowball approaches, they're just obvious. They're just often not as good as making 10 smaller bets and experiments and then and getting them to market quicker. So can you give us some examples, like thinking about stuff that people, you know, what you've got that's unique to offer when thinking about like, what are some examples of like downloadable templates or tools or reports or stuff that you guys are putting out? Well, we try to create content that nobody else is creating and that research that no one else is creating. And so like just three examples, you know, we did a report this year on innovation metrics and understanding, like, how do you measure this really amorphous nebulous thing, whether you're trying to measure internally does this company feel like an innovative place to work or externally are we building things that you know are helping keep our company relevant and helping keep our company growing so you know innovation metrics would be one example two would be we've just interviewed more people at large companies than anybody else you know from alphabet google and amazon to paypal to the new york times to starbucks and marriott and so it kind of we built up this library over time but if you want to know what other companies in your industry are doing we've got a lot of that stuff and then you mentioned templates we often will get folks who've worked in big companies and maybe they're either retired or they're kind of in between roles we'll get them to build like a spreadsheet for us or a powerpoint deck for us that is like, okay, if you need a scorecard to evaluate ideas inside your large company, here's what it might look like. And so we're not handing you the scorecard or the, you know, the spreadsheet. We kind of are handing it to you, but we're saying this is something you could use as a starting point and adapt for your own use within that company. And people find that really helpful versus trying to start from scratch. So what do you, what category do you put the organization in? Are you a media company? Are you an incubator? Are you an accelerator? Are you a, what, what's, what, what are they like? Cause it, you know, you, you seem to cross some categories. Well, we do cross. I've, I, sometimes I describe us as a media and events company because we produce content like a media company. We produce events like a conference company. But I really think that when you're doing something, when you're trying to go past the existing categories, it becomes very hard to describe. And so are we a community company? Yeah, but I sometimes feel like community feels a little bit too soft. Like, you know, hey, we're getting together to you know, put on a bake sale to raise money for uh, the teachers at school so they can buy some more art supplies. So community can feel a little bit squishy. And I, I, I mean, I, we sometimes say we're a network, you know, do people really know what that means? No, but it, we are this group of people all around the world who are working on this challenge of, of, you know, building stuff for the future inside big companies. Yeah. You know, 
going to maybe those somewhat more traditional classifications there, you know, media and events company, there, there are so many out there. You know, there's no, if you're, if you're looking for somebody to talk about Elon Musk, you're, there's not going to be a shortage, right? So when you think about differentiation in that space, you think about running a profitable business, you know, 20 years writing the Boston Globe, all the other publications we've talked about already, like you, you've seen some people do it wrong in the past, right? What are some tips? What are some thoughts that you feel like have made you guys as successful as you are? It's a great question. It's a great point on, I do think, first of all, it's been a really disruptive 20-ish years or 25 years in the media business. And so I feel like I got to see earlier in my career, I got to see some of that disruption happening when I was an employee of the Boston Globe, sort of being asked to figure out digital publishing in the newspaper industry. At the time, the Globe was owned by the New York Times company. And so it was like, trying to be an entrepreneur or like an emerging technology advocate inside, you know, a fairly brand conscious, quality conscious public company. It was really interesting and, and instructional. The the whole game, and I think you've discovered this with your pot, like all great podcasts discover this, right? Is like you try to do something that nobody else does and create content around a problem set that nobody else is thinking about or addressing in a in a unique way. And so with with Innovation Leader, you know, which has been my main project for these last six or seven years, it really was just observing that, as you said, there's lots of people covering Tesla. There's lots of people covering Apple and Google and all of the dis- next wave of disruptive startups, you know, the next Airbnb, the next Stripe, you know, pick your disruptive startup. And we just felt like the area that wasn't well covered where we could add some value and have some uniqueness and ownership was this like, how do Fortune 500 companies innovate? It's a whole different set of challenges. And and they're just, you know, we just felt like there wasn't a lot there in terms of really useful, actionable content. You know, not just news stories about like, hey, John Deere just decided to get into corporate venture capital or company A just acquired startup B, but really getting into the nuts and bolts of like, how does this work? How do people do it? And also, when, when does it go off the rails? Like, what are some of the things that don't really work? Yeah, this is just a, an interest question for me. Why do you think that so many folks in the business media, they they cover the surface of a story, but they don't dig into why and how? Like, they, they're very good at, like, this happened, recounting history, right? And And yet, there is, like... There's like such an obvious source of somebody who has figured out a pattern that others could learn from. And that to me so rarely gets covered. Uh, I think or, there's, go ahead. I think there's two reasons for it to to oversimplify a little bit. I mean, reason one is that a lot of the media is really written for the average reader in mind, right? Like, and if you read, you know, most magazines that you find in a newsstand or most good newspapers like a New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal or, you know, LA Times, right? They're written for, for the typical person that lives in that city or the million plus people that subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. And so people, I think editors sometimes just worry of if you get too much into the granular detail, there's just um, not enough readers that want to go that deep. And it's part of the reason why really more specialized podcasts or websites or niche publications 
um, are thriving right now, really more vertically focused publications, is because they can go deep into that how. Like it's very much what we try to do at Innovation Leader. But I think reason number one is general interest magazines are writing for, you know, I often say it's like the neighbor that you run into at the backyard barbecue. And so if you're going to try to explain SPACs or NFTs to that neighbor, you can really only go so deep into why is WeWork going public through a SPAC versus if you're writing for SPACinsider.com, which I don't know, that may or may not be a thing, right? You can really get into the how of how that deal came together, right? And yeah, I would say like, I would say reason number two is just a lot of journalists don't have great sources where they can call someone in that six hour span that they're writing that story. And like often breaking news media is like even shorter than that. So let's say five or six hours you have to work on that story. Is your network of sources deep enough that you can say like, oh, I know Jess who would really explain the the nitty gritty of why, how did that deal come together and why it's important? They don't, they don't have that person or they don't have the time to reach out to that person. And part of the reason why like podcasts and blogs are so great because you actually do have subject matter experts creating the content and they can go into that. Here's here's how this all came together in a way that like a typical professional journalist, quote unquote, really, really can't. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think my next question is, you know, I hear people say this is not the information age. This is the information overload age. Okay. So, so when you think about, and you think about a way that social media and a lot of digital media in general has gone away from subscriptions, right? And it's advertised driven. There, there is this real temptation for kind of sensationalism for like, you, you've got to do something really crazy, almost clickbaity to, to even get the first three seconds of somebody's attention so that you can have 10 seconds to try and convince them that they should actually invest in this article, this podcast, this video, you know, right. And it's like really great content that doesn't have a click through rate on YouTube doesn't get passed on, you know, like you hear these guys, Mr. Beast, number one YouTuber in the world, people like this, right. And yeah. it's like, they spend, they will spend an entire day on the thumbnail photo because click through rate, click through rate and retention is what the YouTube algorithm will serve to other people, right? So my question for you is all these changes in journalism, what you guys are doing with Innovation Leader now, when you think about the principles of even something like a headline, like you think about the hook point when you're writing a headline, what's, what's worked for you in 20 plus years of doing this? Well, I don't think I agree with a lot of what you said as part of the question, but I mean, there's two kinds of media, right? There's media where the business model is we need to get a lot of clicks because we're advertising supported, you know, or on YouTube, we need to get a lot of views because we're being paid based on views, right? And so that drives a whole set of behaviors, which mostly I don't like and mostly I don't understand. I mean, I, I remember meeting the founder of BuzzFeed before he started that company. We were together at a conference in Montreal and he was telling me about some of what his assumptions were about behaviors and clickbait headlines and creating lists of things and photo slideshows. And I was like, oh, that doesn't really sound like something I want to do. But you know, it's been pretty successful for BuzzFeed and other media companies, right? So there's that ad supported direction. My concern is once you click on it, you're on BuzzFeed material. <laughs> that's, <laughs> right. me, that's the problem, right? Right. Um, right. Sorry, and, go on. And, and yeah, there's a whole other thing going on in Clubhouse, which I don't know if you playing around, played around with, which is it's public. When, you're, when you go into a Clubhouse room, it's public to all of your contacts that you are in that room, right? So you're in a way... It's like BuzzFeed, but you're advertising what list you just clicked on, you know, because you wanted to see the, 
you know, whatever it is, the 12 worst, you know, car wrecks of all time. So, but I do think that like, look, your podcast and what we're trying to do at Innovation Leader is part of a different kind of media, right? Where it is about more in-depth conversations, ideally with interesting people, you're convening for events, you're convening a high quality group of people, you're trying to get people to spend more time with it, you're trying to get people to share useful information and advice. And so it isn't about how many people can I get to read that article or listen to that podcast or be in this breakout room at an event. It's that, you know, we've had breakout rooms at our in-person events where there's four people in the breakout. And some people would go like, oh, that's really an unsuccessful breakout. But it's like, you know, the head of innovation for an NBA team sharing advice with the head of innovation for a bank and someone who thinks about emerging technologies at a, you know, real estate development firm and how commercial real estate is changing. And like they're sharing such great information in that room that that's a great hour for them. And we'll sometimes look at it from a metric and say, well, was that a failed session? We only had four people go to that breakout. Well, no, you talk to all four people and they're like, that was the most useful. That was, you know, worth me flying to San Francisco to participate participate in this event. So I think that fits this other category where like you're curating, you're providing an experience, you're providing information that people find really useful. And it is not as much of a numbers game because, you know, there's other business models there that are not based on clicks, views or advertising. So I completely agree with you. I actually see this in the world of books so much. We, we've got a number of our CEO strategy advisor clients that we've been helping them with strategies on what book should you write that will get your ideal customer to call you instead of having to have your sales team call them, right? And, you know, going like, hey, if you are going to try and become Dan Brown or Malcolm Gladwell, and like you make your money by the actual book sale, you you need to play a different sport, right? Giant book launches and stuff. But when you can go through other case studies of somebody who their book only sold 500 copies over like three years, but it generated an extra 14 million in business. Like I got to tell you, that's a pretty, compared to author standards, net, netting for 14 million bucks is pretty good math, but, but it's a different model, right? And so this idea of like, can you write the book that the right people want to read? Even if you have to send it to them and you don't even right. make a dollar off the book right? What's the keynote speech? What's the consulting gig? What's the services you sell? My my question though is, and and, and while well, can I-, I jump in before you ask this yeah, question yeah, ahead, actually, and say, and just underscore, like in, in your prior question, you were talking about attention spans getting shorter, right? Which is totally true. And I think that affects the types of books you're talking about. It affects advertising supported media. It affects us at Innovation Leader subscription supported media. Shortening attention span is a real thing. And so- I do think it's interesting, like, why does someone want to write a 300 page book? And, you know, because the right people will read it, as you say, I actually think in addition to charging $20 for that hardcover book, right, you could probably come up with a slide deck that summarizes that book in 40 slides or less and charge $100 for that slide deck, right? Come up with a shorter version course. of that book. Call, that? It online, call it a $99 online course. Right. Online course that you could do in an hour, you know, or 90 minutes, you could charge money for that. And I, you could definitely charge money for some kind of summary of the book that's like, hey, I'm going to give you the slide deck that tells you what you need to know. Don't buy the $20 book, buy the $200 slide deck. And I think you do pretty well. Okay. I love this idea. My, my question, my, my previous question is probably less about shortening attention spans 
and more about this idea of like somebody like you who's coming out with great content all the time. The people that have found you become very loyal because they're getting a quality they're not getting elsewhere. You're filling a gap that they're not getting elsewhere. My question is maybe less about the short attention spans and more about how do I get more of my ideal audience to find out about me who haven't had word of mouth bring it to them so far? And that's what I was saying about when you write a headline, when you choose what to cover or not cover to like, hey, we do need to put some more people on the top of the funnel. That was my thought of what's what's Scott's philosophy when he needs to add some more people in the top of the funnel? It's a great question. I mean, I am a believer that content that is unique with good headlines on it is what brings people into the funnel. And it's kind of a mix of, well, you put a lot of that content out there and eventually good things happen from an SEO perspective and good things happen from a word of mouth perspective. I'm not, you know, so I, so I believe in word of mouth, it's just very slow and we get high quality word of mouth with innovation leader, but it's just very slow. And so I think most businesses, unless you're like a really well-tuned SaaS business that has this, you know, amazing A-team of content marketers who just, you know, they have written every blog post that is going to lead you to that top of the funnel page of, you know, sign up for our email newsletter or sign up for the trial or whatever they want you to do. I, I think that there probably are some companies that really feel that they figured that out. And for most, it's still this like persistent and and motivating riddle that you're trying to figure out. Like, how do we get more people aware of us and into the top of the funnel? And I mean, some of what we've been doing lately is like assessment tests and quizzes where you can engage somebody and you can give them an instant score, an instant readout, right? Like, how sophisticated is your company when it comes to innovation is an example of an assessment that we've created recently. And yeah, it's a little bit like the Cosmo quiz of, you know, how loyal is your boyfriend, you know, that you would read in Cosmo magazine, you know, maybe not now, but, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But it's, it addresses that short attention span thing. It gets somebody to engage and participate. And at the end, they may or may not give you an, e you know, an email address for kind of like follow up conversation. So that's kind of one example of what we've been doing, but it is a riddle and I don't think we've totally cracked it yet. Well, I think what I really like what you said is this emphasis on unique, you know, and where you say at Innovation Leader, we're, we're trying to create content you can't just get elsewhere. I think that sometimes we can, uh, you know, especially at startups or places, we can sit around the boardroom table and talk ourselves into how special we are and drink our own Kool-Aid about how unique we are. When you think about your test, when you think about a question people can ask themselves of, is this genuinely unique or is it slightly different? What, what, how, how, and let's stick with content for now. With content, you know, so there's nothing new under the sun. And yet there are new ways of saying things. There are aspects that haven't been covered or there's ways that haven't been covered. So if people want to like stretch, stretch themselves on being more unique, on doing things that haven't been done 15 times in the industry, what's a, what's a test or what's a question they can ask themselves to maybe help push themselves further that direction? Oh, it's a good question about what is the right question to ask. I mean, to some extent you can you can resist the temptation, you know, step one is resisting the temptation to just repackage content that someone else has created, right? Because a lot of times if you're in a startup and you need to have a blog or you need to have a podcast, it's like, let's go out and gather some stuff that other people have done and repackage it into a list of, you know, seven tips for saving for retirement or whatever the blog post is going to be, or let's go out and get some other podcasters and we'll interview them on our podcast about, you know, whatever the topic is supposed to be. And so I think step one is kind of avoiding that easy repackaging of stuff that already exists, right? Because that's not 
unique. It's easy, but it's not unique. And the, the question is, you know, what are our customers or audience, what are they really wrestling with today? Can we get them to tell us what they're really wrestling with today in terms of issues or challenges? And you can do that in interviews. You can do that through observation. You can do that in surveys. We have a survey that's always going on about like, what are your hot button issues? And I think if you, if you try to understand the things that people are grappling with, some of them are new issues and some of them are evergreen issues. And then you say, let's write content about that. I feel like that gets you on the road to being unique, right? Because some of them are going to be new issues that other people haven't written about. Other than going to be evergreen issues, but if you address them in a way that's like, this person told us something really specific about what they need, and we're going to go try to create some content that addresses that, I think nine times out of 10, you're going to create something new that doesn't feel like a rehash because you're going to have that really specific quote that someone told you, and that's going to sort of, that's going to be your assignment. That's going to be your mission to create something. And you're not creating something for this generic persona, this generic thing that exists out there, right? Um, that's going to feel like a retread or a rehash. You're like, oh, Jess said something really specific in that interview that gave me a great idea. And it might have been a metaphor. It might have been a word. It might have been a phrase. But I just think that's the like, that's the yellow brick road to uniqueness and not sameness. Well, I, I got to tell you, so many of the most influential, like people I respect the most who've been on the podcast this year, highest achievers, there's this lesson that I feel like they all keep saying over and over, which is like, quit, like swallow your ego and listen, like get much, like if you want to win, start really getting in tune with your audience, your customers more than your competition, which sounds like something I hear everywhere in books and business media and shocker, you know, like two ears, one mouth. That's only been said for how many thousands of years, right? And yet these people, you know, who built multi-billion dollar tech companies and stuff like this, they like, they live it harder than the other people who say it, you know? And so can we talk about this, your ongoing survey about, hey, what's your hot button issues? How, like that's the information that all of us should have at our weekly staff meeting. Hey, what do our clients or what do our audience think the hot button issues were last week instead of what do we think the hot button issues are, right? Yeah, we do what? it as soon as someone signs up for our email list, right? They're not a paying member. They're just someone who's interested in innovation. Like, hey, do you mind filling out the survey? We do it when folks become paying members, you know, tell us why you joined and how, what you want to know about, right? And so I think every company should have that mechanism. So I'm not sure what I, what more I can say other than these two things, maybe. First of all, salespeople are actually a really good source of that information, right? So, but people don't listen to them often, right? It's like, well, what did you hit your goal this, this month? Not, did you talk to a customer who said, if only you could do Y instead of X, I would love to write you a check, right? And so I think there are lots of interesting examples where salespeople can be a source of customer insight and market shifts, but people don't ask them, you know, because it's just like, oh, no, you know, Francine's an amazing salesperson. She's hitting her number. She's doing knocking it out of the park. And you never think that, oh, actually, Francine is a part of the should be a part of the customer insights team, because the time she doesn't make a sale, there's some really interesting reason why that we yeah, should know about. 
And the other thing I would say is that I think there are a lot of stories that are told about like true entrepreneurs, like a lot of the Steve Jobs stories or the Jeff Bezos stories where it's like this person is so far ahead of the industry that you could never have asked a customer to tell you that they wanted the Macintosh computer or the iPhone or whatever Apple innovation we're going to use as an example. But I do think that even those, you know, those role model innovators do have a lot of insights about what other companies are doing right now and where they're falling short and how, you know, what, cu- you know, what customers would say if you ask them about their frustrations, right? And so it's not that the customer is going to give you your idea of what to build, but if you feel like, oh, we're actually going to build something that's a generation or two beyond what exists in the world, you really, you know, the, the people who are successful at it really do do a lot of customer anthropology and customer listening. And they, they sort of have that in their gut of like, customers are going to give us the blueprint, but here's, here's what they can't do with, you know, today's existing products and services. And that's why we're going to make this giant leap. That's great. You know, I I want to talk about the books. Before we do that, though, let's shift gears a little bit of, you know, during COVID, it's been a lot of virtual events. Before COVID, you know, people see the success of Dreamforce or, you know, non-event companies doing events and it being a huge brand lift and opportunity to have conversations with customers you don't normally get. My question for you is, when you think about successes you've had from subscribers to event attendees, there's so many events people can go to. There's, I mean, how many emails do we all get about webinars or others, some kind of Zoom something we can join these days, right? When you think about why you think people are paying good money to be at your events, what what do you think you guys have done that's special? At our virtual events or in person or either? Both. Let's do both. Well, I think in person, we've always said, let's create experiences that are not, you know, we're like learning is the price of entry, you know, is the foundational thing where like someone has to justify like, oh, I'm going to learn something and build my network by going this to this event. That's that's the reason most people would buy a ticket to anything, whether it's South by Southwest or an innovation leader event or, you know, or Dreamforce, which you mentioned. But we've tried to say, look, you really have to differentiate on top of that. And so we've said, look, the experience is going to be about people running exercises and teaching you things the way they teach their colleagues and their company. And sometimes that involves, you know, prototyping with Play-Doh or with pipe cleaners. Sometimes it involves going into spaces that companies have built, you know, maker spaces or innovation centers and actually experiencing and seeing it with your own, you know, with your own eyes and ears. So, We've always designed for that that experience where people come back and they're like, I've never been to anything like that, you know, and so that means kind of avoiding PowerPoint presentations, avoiding largely like avoiding conference centers and convention centers. That's that's in person. And I think virtual is still the jury is still out on how you run a good virtual event. I do feel like it's changed in a way like every week of the pandemic. A lot of stuff doesn't work in terms of engagement. I think there's a lot of passivity where people, you know, our customer feedback will say, oh, I I like that virtual conference. I had it on in the background while I was doing other stuff. And so in a way, it it becomes like listening to, you know, listening to CNBC or listening to NPR in the background. And you're like, oh, we put a lot of work into that. I'm not sure I like it being background noise at your home office, but that's the reality. And I, I think one thing that we've tried to do well in the virtual space is just test out a lot of the platforms 
for stuff that feels more natural and organic, whether it's sort of the, the platforms like Run the World or Icebreaker.video for one-on-one meetings or stuff like Remo, where you can kind of move around to virtual tables. And so a lot of running good virtual events does rely on like having a platform that lets you do stuff other than look at slides. Okay. Can we run through those three you just named and just give us one little blurb on each of those for those of us not familiar with those three? Yeah, Run the World and Icebreaker are both kind of chat roulette style networking where you'd have a group of 50 people and you're going to do, say, an hour of random five minute or 10 minute conversations. The thing I like about icebreaker.video is you can, they supply a deck of cards of things to talk about. And so it's not awkward. You actually flip through a deck of virtual cards and one of them might be like, what's your favorite kitchen implement? Or what's the best vacation you've ever been on? So it gives you things to talk about, or you can make up your own deck of cards and have your own set of, you know, maybe subject matter related prompts. Remo is the other platform. It's remo.co. And they basically design an interface that looks like your high school cafeteria with lots of different tables. And you could say each table is going to have a specific discussion topic, or maybe I'm going to have an expert at these different tables. And if you want to learn about running a successful hackathon, you go to this table and you talk to Patty and you can move from table to table. If you're, when you go to a table, different video windows pop up. And so there might be four people. So you see a, you know, postage stamp size video of who's at your table and you can talk to them. But if the conversation gets boring, unlike Zoom meetings, there's another place to go. You can you can dash over to a different table. So we we really feel like there are some great tools out there for getting different kinds of conversations and and interactions to happen. I love it. Well, let's talk about these books for a minute. Let's start with what I think is a really interesting title, Inventing the Movies. Yeah, that was a really fun book to work on. It started off as an idea that George Lucas had when he was still running Lucasfilm as an independent company. And it was just kind of a question, which is, why does the movie industry fight and reject every new technology that comes along? And at that point, he had just been through the battle of trying to shoot Star Wars episode one. And I think also Star Wars episode, he had, he had just finished episode three when I started working on that project. And, you know, he had shot one, two, and three with digital cameras. And even before that, he had been thinking about new tools for editing movies. And so inventing the movies wound up being this exploration of why do you have these established movie studios and production companies that have been around for decades and decades? You know, some of them go back, you know, have roots in the silent film era. And yet every time something new comes along, when I was working on the book, it was iTunes and YouTube and Netflix that were the new things. Why did the established companies in the movie industry always say, this is terrible. This is going to reduce the quality of our product. This is going to disrupt our business model. Let's fight it. And so the book wound up being a lot of an exploration in a way of human psychology and why once people rise to the top of their field, once they are a celebrated movie director like a Steven Spielberg or a celebrated cinematographer or film editor, it's very hard to get them to change and embrace something new. And people, you know, people fall in love with the tools they use and people fall in love with the way they work. And that's true in the movie industry. And it's true in just about every other industry that I've ever looked at. And when did that one come out? I think that one came out around 2007 or eight. 
So I'm interested, you know, there's so many people fascinated with Hollywood and the movie industry and entertainment in general. You know, that's what, 13 years ago now, right? What have been some of the follow-on benefits of of having paid the price to write a book like that? What, what How's that shown up over the years, benefits for you? Well, I think as you alluded to before, when you were talking about working with CEOs interested in writing books, you know, for most books, the real benefit is you go on speaking tours and people hire you to speak. And so... I gave lots of really fun speeches with, you know, illustrated with movie clips at lots of big trade shows and conferences, mostly around the US, but some in some in Europe as well. And so that's one follow on follow on benefit. Did a, bu- a bunch of media appearances promoting that book on NPR and the Harvard Business Review podcast and places that I felt like, well, help build my brand as somebody who understands the psychology and the nuances of innovation. And it was mostly it was just fun, to be honest. Like I'm a big believer of like, if you're not having fun doing something, you better change something about the way you do it or stop doing it and find something else. Why do you think so many of us like that, but then don't live that? Well, like that idea, but then don't live it. Usually it's because you have to make a living doing something and you get pulled into a vortex of like, I can make a lot of money working at this company. And even if I'm not perfectly happy at work, I have some hobbies or I have a great family and they compensate in other other ways. But, you know, work is a big part of our lives. And so I do feel like, you know, there should be some things that, are fulfilling, challenging, make you happy, make you feel like you're creating new stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I've been wrestling with this lately. I my there's there's two authors <laughs> that I wanted on the show more than anybody. Okay, Warren Buffett, who his books are shareholder letters. Okay, and Richard Koch, the guy that wrote the eighty twenty principle. And I finally got him on last week. Okay, and he he really emphasized something that I'd read a hundred times because I love his books so much. But he just, again, hearing it from him just like spoke to my soul or something, right? And he just said like, basically the message was like, hey, figure out what you were born to do. Like figure out this thing that you have an unfair advantage of that you're just wired for that doesn't feel like work and don't do anything else. And, you know, not everybody can do that. But as an entrepreneur, you can you can hire people for the other jobs, right? And like the the idea of it actually being a really, really profitable strategy to do what's fun that, you know, and yet how many times have I just taken the money and probably let myself slip into less immediate money instead of, you know, delegating that out or hire, you know, hiring a subcontractor to take care of that so that I would have more time for these things that will people will actually pay quite a bit more for like every time i engineer the acquisition of a real estate building the lifelong <laughs> the lifelong income on an open ended fund by buying a building once and just managing not to sell it like that, that's a really high power hour right that lunch appointment you know and yet how many times have i like got involved in the team's accounting or like read my own emails or you know played the back and forth game on scheduling in you know and i hate i hate that stuff Right. And well, I can't always get out of it, but a lot of times I wasn't even trying. Yeah. I do think that trying to delegate and looking for opportunities to delegate and to hire or to contract out. I mean, I'm a big fan of stuff like Upwork as a marketplace for like, oh, I don't really want to learn how to do this or I don't want to execute that for 20 hours of my week, but I can find someone on Upwork who's really good at it and who's going to appreciate, you know, a couple hundred bucks or a thousand bucks for this project. Right. And so, 
the thing that's cool about the moment we're living in is it's really easy to find fractional people anywhere in the world to do stuff where you're like, I know how to do that, but I don't want to spend X number of hours doing that. I think the thing you said, the couple of things you said that I really, I, I feel like really resonate and I'm an advocate of is like, boy, giving advice when you're talking to, when we have interns or when I'm talking to people who are in the early stages of their career finding that thing that you really love doing and want to learn about and is unique and is going to really motivate you. You just notice in the world, there's people who have figured that out and know that that's important. And there's people who just are going to have a series of jobs and they are just going to go through life having a series of jobs, right? And you don't want your kids or you don't want your relatives or you don't want your interns to right get pulled into that, that path because it's not really fulfilling. And then the other thing is that understanding yourself and how you relate to other people is this really lifelong journey and it's worth paying attention to. And sometimes people will write you a big check for a project that helps you get further along that journey, right? Helps you meet some interesting people um, that you're going to learn from. And sometimes it's just a check and actually doesn't get you further along that journey. And I think sometimes you might take jobs, or you might start companies that that help you along that journey. But but so much of like of doing good stuff and making things happen is about the people that you can connect to and the people you surround yourself with, the people that mentor you and and the people that you mentor. And so I I think you and I are both big believers, right? In that it's really important to to focus on where is your time, you know, where is your time being allocated on that? You know, my my grandfather always used to say, like, you know, you sometimes you have to pay for an education, you know, like you have to either have some failures or spend some time to learn stuff that's going to be difficult, but is going to help you leap forward. And so having that mental pie chart of like, how much stuff am I doing just for the money? And how much stuff am I doing because it's growing my network and I'm learning and I'm having fun. It's worth having that that pie chart in your head or checking in with it every couple of weeks. Uh, I love it. I apologize. We're out of time. Give us the give us the elevator pitch on the Innovation Economy book before we go here. Oh, yeah. Innovation Economy is a collection of my Boston Globe columns about the startup ecosystem in New England, which I've been writing about for 20 plus years now and I think is unique and, and very different from the, you know, the economy in Silicon Valley or other parts of the world. I love it. Well, listen, really appreciate you doing this. We totally should have you back on the show. I think there's like 100 more questions I had for you. And everybody should be going to, to innovationleader.com. What do, you, what do you want to leave with today? Well, this was super fun. I feel like now I want to figure out how to help you get Warren Buffett on the show, right? Because that's your last big get for, for this podcast. You, right? would my undying, you would earn my undying love for life. Just, you know. <laughs> gonna, we're going to figure that out. But uh, look, I feel like, you know, innovation sometimes gets used as a word that doesn't have meaning that people throw around. But if you really think about true innovation, it's something that moves us forward as a civilization. And so I think, you know, the, the best innovators are innovators who have purpose in mind and they can communicate that purpose to other people, whether you're in a startup, whether you're in a Fortune 500, that's true, right? It's about getting other people to go on this journey with you. Love it. Okay, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.